have anything with you, just kind of raise your hand. That'll be okay too. But our little mantra that we share is, I'm a child of God. Have in my hand. Powerful Word of God. Can change lives. Heal broken hearts. Save man's soul. And here's our prayer. Lord Jesus today, speak to me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, love you. Tell them, you're the best. With a smile, not you're the best. You can even look at them and say, of all the people I've seen today, you're certainly one of them. There we go. That's a little more smile. We begin the third act of our story, and um, I'm loving this chronological study through the Bible, and uh, if, you're, if you missed any of them, they're on our website, rocjinx.org. There's some tabs there about just a little ways down, and hit online features. When you touch that, the sermons come up. They're by date, by title. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and catch the introduction and the beginning and right up to where we are now. And if you have a hard time sleeping at night, you put those on. It should take care of that for you. At least that's my wife's remedy for her insomnia. And so I uh, encourage you in that way. But uh, we're in the third act. And we're going to begin to see now over the next few weeks, God using some unlikely heroes. Unlikely heroes. Um, and as we follow the nation of Israel, God faithfully throughout the life of Joshua and the elders who succeeded him had brought them ready into the promised land. The, what he had promised Moses, right? So they're going. They're, they're, they're ready to go. They've seen the walls of Jericho crumble. Remember um, Josh and the big wall, the Veggie Tales version? Man, if you see that, you'll never forget this story. The American Legion guys looking down and say, hey, Pickle, what are you doing? Because they couldn't understand why a pickle would be marching around the walls. So, though the people have seen all these things happen, they yet failed to instill, these people failed to instill a love and devotion for God in their children. Now, it's important that we make sure kids get the power and the message of the Word of God. Would you say amen, amen to that? Good. Because we need to make sure they get it. And the best person to dispense that or people to dispense that to the children are your youth ministers and your preachers. Can you say amen? amen. No, we're not either. You're not even listening. The parents and the grandparents, the moms and the dads, they're the ones that are the dispensers of the story. Come on. You're, don't make me get up. It's going to get ugly. So in chapter 8 of the story, better yet, in the Bible, Judges chapter 2, which the story is obviously Scripture, but Judges chapter 2 in those Bibles, we're going to look at a few good men and women today. And uh, the setting for our message today in the background is that Joshua has just died, and we pick up the story in chapter 2 and verse 10. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Jeff, I'm going to stop there. Let's go ahead and play that promo video that I skipped over earlier because I think it's just a lot of fun. So let's, let's take a look. and women are protected in that uh, little video. You see, that verse, Judges 2.10, is a very frightening verse because it can happen in any generation. I'm not so sure it's not happening now. But it's important that parents and grandparents pass along their spiritual faith. I'm always telling my granddaughter how much God loves her and how smart she is and how much and how important the stories of the Bible are. I'll ask her nearly every Sunday, Kelsey, what did you learn in class today? And I love her answer. It's so classic. She goes, I don't know. (laughs) Then a little bit of prompting and boy, she can just tell you the story. But that's typical children, isn't it? How was your day today? Fine. Did you meet anybody? No. Did you get in trouble? No. Were you a good person? Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that about the conversation we have at home? Wouldn't it be great to open Scripture and just let them expound to you what the great truth that God has given to them through a a book of the Bible or through a passage in Scripture? I mean, John 3.16, wouldn't it be great for them to go, Wow, Dad, Mom, isn't it great that God loved me so much that He gave His Son so I could go to heaven and be with, with the Lord? Wow. Now, you would pass out if they ever said that. You'd think somebody body snatched them and where'd your kid go? But you see, it's possible if we show them the power of God in our own lives, you see. But we're the ones, the parents, the grandparents, we're the ones that are to dispense this information, to pass it along to that next generation. But Judges chapter 2 begins a cycle, a cyclical pattern of behavior by the Israelites There was disobedience and punishment, followed by repentance and deliverance. But when they disobeyed, they began to walk in darkness. And they stopped worshiping the Lord. They began to idol worship and Baal worship. And instead of standing out, they began to blend in and compromise. And they became just like their pagan neighbors. Does that sound familiar at all? Here we are in 2014, and the same cycles into heaven. Uh, but we're a godly nation, Pastor. Judges 2, 12 and 13. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and Ashtoreth. Or Ashtoreths. Now, Ashtoreths were poles that were put in honor of a supposed Canaanite goddess and such worship had been clearly forbidden 
in the book of Leviticus and through the Levitical law. So they were going against God's plan when they began worshiping the Ashtoreths. We don't have Ashtoreths today, do we? They're anywhere from 47 inch to 90 inch. Some of you are going, what's that? Think a little bit, it'll come to you. About the end of the service, you go, oh yeah. But I want you to hear a summary of the entire book of Judges. And we start at verse 16, chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whatever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So this is quite a pattern of walking in darkness. But each time, God is going to use a judge to lead them back into the light of the the Lord. (coughs) And so for 400 years, one by one, A dozen people, 11 of them were men, one of them a woman. One by one they led the nation of Israel back from darkness. But we're going to look at three of those today as quickly as we can. Here we go. The earlier judge, one of the earlier judges was a woman named Deborah. I didn't think women could lead. Now, that's a whole different message, so we'll move on. But we start by saying Deborah, and we call her Deborah, a woman of influence. A woman of influence. She was the most unlikely judge because she was a she. <laughs> she didn't lead. She was living in a man's world, and that was not common for a woman to hold such a powerful political office. They didn't lead nations. They usually were seen and not heard. Deborah was raised up, however, by God. To be a judge among his people. And so God used this woman in a powerful way. Several years ago, there was a wealthy CEO of a company. (coughs) Excuse me. He and his wife were on vacation in New England. And they stopped at a gas station. And he goes inside to get a candy bar. And when he comes out, his wife, he sees his wife having an animated conversation with the gas station attendant. And they were both laughing and the guy felt a little awkward, but he just didn't say anything. He walked around and got in the car. And she kind of finished up her uh, conversation, called him by name, and gets in the car. And so they drive. And uh, he's quiet. She's quiet. <coughs> but he gets the best of him. He says, uh, hey, who was that guy? Oh, it's the strangest thing. She said, that's the guy that I was engaged to years ago before you. And we haven't seen each other since all that took place. Well, of course, this guy, the husband, he didn't know what to think, so he drives on a little further, and then finally he gets a little smug, arrogant look on his face, and he says, so, do you ever think about it? If you had married him, 
You'd, marry, you'd be married to a gas station attendant. She said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Had he married me, he would have become the CEO. <laughs> Never underestimate the power and influence of a woman. J.F. Sandville says, women have more strength in their looks than men have in their laws. They have more power by their tears than we have by our arguments. We look at the life of Deborah, Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, now remember that name, Sisera. All of you say it, ready? Sisera. Very good, remember that name. The commander of his army was based in Harasheth Hogoyim. Now I don't want you to remember those two, just let, let that go. But remember Sisera. Now, you didn't need, and it took me all week to get those names out, by the way, and there's more. You didn't need to remember those because he had 900 chariots, Sisera, he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And they cried to the Lord for help. And Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, don't, don't memorize that one either, <coughs> she was leading Israel at the time, and she had a close walk with the Lord, remember, and in the Old Testament, it's very rare to find a woman who was called a prophet. In other words, she spoke for God. She spoke on his behalf. But Deborah did. And she was all of that. But in chapter 4 of Judges, verse 14, we see Deborah talking to her commander. And she says, whose name is Barak. <laughs> Interesting. It says, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now in the conversation, Deborah's very quick to point out to Barak, who is a little reluctant to go into battle against this powerful enemy, who's been terrorizing them for 20 years, but she points out that a woman will be the hero of the battle. And in Barak, the commander's mind, he's thinking, well, Deborah, she's the leader, right? She's the uh, commander. Hmm. <coughs> She's our spiritual leader. She must be talking about herself. Somehow she's going to become the hero of all of this. But I want you to watch how things happen. How God does something. Because the battle takes place, and the Israelites have the enemy on the run. Sisera, in verse 17, says, Meanwhile, fled on foot. <coughs> oh, I'm ready for winter to be over. But why did he flee on foot? Because they were getting their tails kicked. So the commander, this big, strong commander, takes off running. <laughs> He's fleeing on foot. And he goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jeff, could you turn the fan off, I think? <coughs> That's probably what's causing it. So what is really going on is that he's looking for refuge, he's looking to hide, he's looking to be kept safe. And so Sarah, this commander of the army, is exhausted, uh, he's thirsty, he's running to hide. And now the kindness of her heart, Jael gives, gives him refuge. She gives him some warm milk. She says, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna tell, I'm not going to tell anybody about your hiding place. And so she tucks him in for a nap. I mean, really, what a sweet woman, right? <coughs> He falls fast asleep, and J.L., this housewife, 
picks up a long tent peg and a hammer. And while he's sawing logs, she starts driving nails and drives one of them through his head. Now, that's kind of a graphic story, but it's true. And the Bible doesn't candy, candy coat violence or sin that abounds at times. And, of course, he dies. And sometime later, Barak and the Israelites come in pursuit of Sisera, and they, they come to this area and they, they, that he's thinking that he could seek refuge. And they said, hey, have you seen the enemy of God? Have you seen Sisera lurking around? And J.L. looks at him and says, oh yeah, he's over there in my tent. <coughs> he's in your tent. Thank you, son. He's in your tent. Yeah, I killed him. you got to be kidding me. You killed him? Yes. Deborah's prophecy and prediction had come true. A woman, she said, would be the hero of the battle. <laughs> but I guarantee you that J.L.'s husband, Heber began to treat J.L. a lot differently from that day forward. <laughs> I bet if they had a small argument, she'd say, you know what, you look tired. Why don't you take a nap? <laughs> and he'd quickly say, no, honey, I'm just fine. Bet you they didn't go camping much either. So <laughs> Deborah was respected by her people, spoke the truth. God revealed to her that because of the fear and reluctance of some of the men, some of the warriors that a woman would end up being the hero. And everyone assumed it was Deborah. But you and I know that as, as we study through the story, God uses the most unlikely heroes to get done what He needs done. Well, the trend carries on into our second story. And it's about a man named Gideon. Gideon, a man of courage. For seven years, Israel had been struggling through the period of oppression. The Midianites and the Amalekites were ruthless barbarians and intimidated the Hebrews by destroying their crops and stealing their cattle. And in Judges chapter 6 and verse 11, where we pick it up, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash and Abezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. You see, it wasn't typical to thresh wheat in a wine press, but if you do that, the wind blows the chaff away and people can see what you're doing. And so they're trying to hide that. So the Midianites, because they're such a ruthless gang of thugs, Gideon wants to make sure that they don't come in, stomp, uh, trample his crops and steal what he's working on. But in the midst of the story, God's going to move Gideon <clears throat> from fear to trust. Look at verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now that's kind of a stretch to call him a mighty warrior. After all, he's just a farmer, right? He's attempting to save his crop before the Midianites can steal it. And I think the angel of God is inspiring him to become this mighty warrior. But God is fixing to take him out of his comfort zone. Look at verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. He's discouraged. He feels inadequate. <coughs> Apprehensive because of his roots and because of his resources. His relatives weren't powerful leaders or fierce warriors. They were among the Rodney Dangerfields of the world. That's kind of dating me, isn't it? They were some of the lowest of the tribe of Manasseh. How would he be able to convince anyone in Israel to follow him to war? Judges 6.16, 6, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. You and I 
We'll do it together. So God gives Gideon a test in order to see whether or not he'd be teachable, whether he's committed enough. And if Gideon truly trusted God, this would be a good sign. So God commands Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal. Gideon was being asked to clean house in his father's front yard as the first step. So Gideon obeys, and the men in the town hear that he's destroyed the altar to Baal and the Ashtaroth, and they go out to kill him. <laughs> so that was the first true loyal test of his loyalty. And Gideon was, uh, has got to be thinking, Lord, I can't believe this. The very first test you're giving me is to go and involve my family, my blood. So many things we could apply here. If you are truly a committed Christian, unless you come from a long line of totally sold out believers, then there will be times when you have to boldly take a stand for your faith. And sometimes it involves taking a stand with your family. It's not a matter of trying to ruffle the feathers of your extended family. It's not a quest to make yourself appear spiritually superior to a spouse or to your siblings or to your parents. It's not your desire to make a scene at the family reunion. But if you've chosen to be a follower of Christ and not a fan, then there will be some intense moments when you must courageously take a stand for what the Bible teaches and for what you know is to be true. You have to be prepared for that. Don't get cocky and arrogant. Don't be harsh. Be passionate and loving and find a way to express it. Some of you have been ridiculed. Others of you have been ostracized by, by family members and close friends because you've become a Christian. <coughs> and while I'm sorry that that's happened, I can't but help wonder if maybe God isn't testing you. If God isn't putting you through that first test, as he was preparing Gideon, he says, I will be with you, Gideon. And God knew that he would stand up to this pagan practice of his parents within the home. Then he would become a person to stand up to the Midianites. And then he goes to the second test. It's a much greater test. He tells Gideon to go fight the Midianites. But again, no specific uh, uh, Things given other than just a promise when he says, I will be with you and we will strike down the Midianites together. So Gideon calls the tribes of Israel to come. 32,000 men come to fight. And that's exciting. Except the Midianites had 135,000. Now, I don't know about you, but if Union plays, uh, uh, Jinx plays Union, and we've got 35,000 and they've got 135,000. They're probably going to win because they've got 100,000 more than we do. Yeah, that's about right. No, they won't win. What are you talking about? <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, we got Coach Bryant over here who doesn't play one down at all. And between when he and Brad were both on the sideline, it, it got ugly during the game watching those two. So God says to Gideon, we got a problem. Yeah, we do. They outnumber us by 100,000 100, men. God says, no, what I want you to do is I want to, I want to try to pare them down. So just tell them if any of them are scared and don't want to go fight, just go home. So 22,000 leave. Cuts it down to 10,000. Gideon says, God, we got a problem. God says, no, not really. He said, we don't. He said, no, we, we got too many to go fight. We need to pare it down some more. So he 
says they're all thirsty. I want you to take them down to the river. And those that just dive right in, don't pay any attention to what's going around them. He said, call them out, send them home. But those that watch while they're drinking, keep them. So that's what he did. So Gideon now is down to 300 men. <laughs> 300 men. And that's, so that's one man for every 450 of the Midianites. And then God looks at him and says, we're ready. We're ready? We're ready? Judges 7, 9. They divided into three companies of 100 men. They got their weapons just like Joshua had. They got a trumpet. Uh, they got empty jars. They put their weapons. Uh, they got, those were their weapons. And then they took a torch with them. You know, I mean, they're ready to go, right? Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. <coughs> they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding on in the right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. You see, they had encircled the mountain. The 135,000 were down in the valley. And they hear this noise in the middle of the night. It throws them into chaos and confusion. And as a result, they take off with their swords and they start slashing. And because they thought that they were being attacked. And they were killing each other. God used the Midianites to take themselves out. And then, those that were left over, these 300 Wild-eyed Israelites chase them out of the area. And the Bible says, the Bible says that Israel enjoyed a time of peace. 450 to 1, and yet they won. And why did they win? Because God said to Gideon, I'll be with you. And together we're going to win this battle. I'm often surprised when I hear a Christian say, you know what? I can never be used by God. Really? Did you just hear this story? God can do incredible things. He just needs one of us to say yes. Are we listening more to Satan who's against us instead of God who's for us? Oh, I could never get out of debt, you say. I could never turn my marriage around, you say. I could never share my faith with, with another person, you say. I mean, I would love to teach you how to do that. But you see, fear grips every one of us in different ways. And while what you are afraid of, God can take care of. I mean, after all, 450 to 1 and they win? Wow. They won with glass jars and a torch and a trumpet? Wow. God wanted that to happen. And the reason that He had them win the way He did was so that they couldn't take credit, but God got all the glory. And so when you see God answer a prayer, don't, don't take any credit. Quickly deflect that. Quickly deflect and reflect onto the Lord. It's the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. When people say to me, man, I love to hear you sing. There's parts of me that want to go, yeah, I'm pretty good, I know. But I've quickly realized that I have nothing. I have nothing. If God can use a little bit of what I might have as a gift or a talent, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Third story, real quickly, Samson, a man of vindication. <clears throat> Samson, a man of vindication. With Samson, we see that God can do mighty things with just one man, and through his life, we see almost in spite of his life, God can do something great. Samson was strong, courageous, bold. He was a man's man, very intimidating. He had a reputation for his strength because of how God works in so many different situations. God had empowered him. You know, I picture Samson standing up in his little toga thing, and he would, he would uh, you know, push his muscles in his leg, and they would just kind of ripple up and, you know, show the muscles. I mean, I can do that, and nothing happens. Nothing changes. You know, I, it's, just, it's really ugly. It's really ugly. I can, I can try to flex my calf muscles, and it just it stays the same. It's just it's, it's really discouraging, especially where I where I uh, yeah yeah, and then it locks up from cramps, you know. So, but Samson, he was he was quite a look. Uh, people, even men, admired the way he looked. But he was raised in Nazarite, which meant he would drink no alcohol. He had no haircuts. He would never eat anything unclean until the day of his death. And the only one that he really kept of all those promises was his hair. He failed quite quickly with the others. At one point, he wanted to marry a Philistine woman, an unbeliever, and his parents tried to talk him out of it, refused to listen, married her anyway. <clears throat> so things got off to a bad start. And that was just one of many relationships that went astray. But Samson would take on his enemies. In fact, one time he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. They thought they had him. He just grabs a donkey's jawbone and kills them all. But as strong as he was, his weakness was just as great when it came to women, especially pagan women. So see, it's all about women. Women are the evil that Satan uses. I knew I'd at least get Sam to respond to that, okay? Oh, there's no getting out of that statement, so. But he, his great strength was revealed to Delilah. Now, the thing about these pagan women, they weren't necessarily more attractive than the Israelite women, but they were forbidden. And so because they were forbidden... Anytime you tell a kid, don't do that, what do they do? They look at you and go do it. Human nature. Well, Samson, same way. You know, there's just sometimes people will hear this story about Samson. And they'll say, how could that guy be so dumb? Well, let me say very quickly, ladies, we are that, that dumb. We are. And for all of you ladies, you would say, Amen. This is your time to get back at me. So, ladies, on three. One, two, three. Amen. Crucify! Cru okay, all right, all right. Oh, I feel a lot better. No. No, because we do dumb things. Men do, women do, we all do. We all do dumb things that we shouldn't do. Because we get so caught up in our own personal desires that we forget about the Lord. And so Samson was in that way. And you know the story, he, she gives him a haircut, I guess that's the picture of her doing her clippers with her scissors. The Philistines gouge out his eyes. And Samson's pride is destroyed, he's helpless, he's broken, and like so many of us, that's when he turns to God and we do the same thing and humbly makes one final plea. 
He's gone from being a hulk to being a fool. All at the hands of God's enemies. So he's standing, the way the story is, he's standing and chained up between the two pillars of the temple. And he desperately wants vindication and justice for the enemies of God. And so, Judges 16, verse 27, take a look. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. On the roof there were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. So in other words, they were, they were all laughing and making fun of him. Then Samson prays to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, O God. Please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two center pillars on which the temple stood. And those muscles began to show once again. Bracing himself against them, right hand on one, the left hand on the other. He cries, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushes with all of his might. And you know the story. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more than when he died. Many more when he died than while he lived. Throughout the book of Judges, this cycle, disobedience, punishment, repentance, deliverance. We see it over and over and over again. And then the sons of Israel... Once the judge would go, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They continued to walk in darkness when the leader wasn't there. Because they forgot what God could do. Earl Nightingale said, You will remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. In other words, we change when we feel the pain. We change when we feel the pain. Maybe you've been in a cycle of poor choices and sinful behavior. God can still work. It's not over. Just like Samson, he's writing that story all the way until the last paragraph. You might not be able to see it, but Almighty God can. You might not have the strength, but God does. You might not have the courage, but God will give it to you. You might see no way out, but God will provide a way out. He did not, He did not send Jesus for nothing. He knew that it would take the death of His Son, Jesus, who chose that path to conquer the grave so that you and I could conquer the grave, God delivered him. And deliverance came and God won. And guess what? He can do the same for us. So if you're here today and you've never turned your life over to Jesus Christ, I want to extend that invitation to you right now. Maybe you've been in a pattern of darkness and today you could come into this marvelous light. Maybe you've never turned your life over to Christ. You see, He wants you. He doesn't care what you've done in the past. He's more concerned about your future. There are others of you who are already Christians and you need to commit to being part of this church. Whatever your decision is, whatever needs you may have, I want you to respond to God this morning. Father, as we get ready to stand and sing a hymn of invitation, God, I'm praying that you will... 
move in the lives of your people. That, Father, they will sense your presence. They will sense the need to come to you. And, Father, you love us. You love us with all the problems we have. You love us with all the difficulties we face. You love us even though we've messed up time after time after time after time. You still are waiting on the porch to see us coming in the distance. And the beautiful story of that prodigal son is that you leave the porch and you run to meet us. So God, would there be one today that would just simply take a step towards you and be able to supernaturally see you running to them? In Jesus' name, amen.